Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The opening of Matthew's Gospel is the announcement of the birth of Jesus. And he's called Emmanuel, which is a quotation from the book of Isaiah. And so the word Emmanuel, or the name Emmanuel, it actually only occurs three times in the Bible. Two times in Isaiah, in chapter 7 and 8, and then in Matthew 1.23. Let's read then Matthew 1.23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And so this name that is applied to Jesus I believe that Matthew is describing a shift, and of course it's partly described there in Isaiah, but it's a shift that is fulfilled in Jesus, that what is predicted or prophesied in Isaiah comes true in Jesus. And we know that God had appeared to people throughout the Old Testament, but usually it was with the assurance, be not afraid, I am with you. But notice in this Emmanuel phrase that the perspective changes. It's man's recognition that God is with us. And this understanding is going to be brought home through the ministry of Christ. The concept of God with us, you know, this is reiterated throughout Jesus' ministry. He told his disciples that where two or three are gathered together in his name in Matthew 18, 20, that he would be present. He spoke of the promise of the Holy Spirit as dwelling with you. That is God with you permanently. In John 14, 17, he will be in you. He will abide with you forever. And so the God with us in dwelling is spoken of that Christ says that it is a permanent shift. It's a permanent a realization. Colossians puts it this way, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is, here is the hope of glory, fulfilled. The consummation of all things, as shown to the Apostle John, in which the Lord said, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. And so part of the difference of this God with us, C.S. Lewis captures this. He describes that as a kind of shattering of what we might project as our idea of God. This is Lewis. He says, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It doesn't itself come from God. He says it has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say, he says, that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? And most are offended by the iconoclasm, but he said, blessed are those who are not. That is, God with us shatters our understanding of God, and that seems to be continually the case. 
This past week we finished our last course through Plowshares Bible Institute for the year and it was on the Holy Spirit and all of the participants of there we had people in New Zealand, in Australia, in Mexico, several places in the United States, so all over the world and they're all seasoned pastors and theologians, people, many of them have graduate degrees but they all describe, we all describe this experience that as we've grown as Christians that one of our, you know, our idea, our understanding of God sh is shattered in a sense that our former ideas are shattered and there's a realization I think that we might call God with us that is God's presence in, in our lives I think we miss it in marriage, in fatherhood, in friendship and just in prayer that ultimately every order of our life we should look and see God's presence as Romans 8 describes it that in contemplative prayer and we become aware of the divine activity throughout the cosmos pervading our world and so we're so attuned in our secular age to a kind of disenchanted universe you know Charles Taylor calls it the God forsakenness of the world and it takes a conscious effort to wake up to this God with us to this iconic nature I believe that the world testifies to his presence and maybe in continuing look to look for God to show up you know it, it may be that we've missed him in the still small voice of friendship of prayer of married love and so in the ordinary course of human life human suffering human love it kind of brought home to us Alan who is down in Mexico Alan seems to have a special tender heart for the stray animals on his street and so what the whole class he had a little kitten on his shoulder that he had just rescued and he can't let it out with the other animals because he's not sure of what diseases it had but even that rescued cat it kind of reminded us of well God is at work in many places in many ways and the recognition requires a relinquishing maybe of our idea of God of our settled ideas our limited notions of God that it opens us to a kind of unsettling realization God is with us the pervasive presence of the Spirit and this two things you know the kind of settled idea of God and maybe trying to continually conjure up God I think it's the same failure to divinize an idea is to miss how God is with us the in flesh manner in which God comes to us an idea you know if we have an idea and it's not God it's not in flesh it's not felt it has no presence and it gives no comfort and that's precisely interestingly what Isaiah is talking about when he pictures Emmanuel God with us he uses the same word that Lewis uses of a shattering of human ideas human religion human plans Isaiah 8 9 to 10 says be broken O peoples and be shattered 
and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. In verse 19, he warns, you know, this is further down, that the people are going and consulting the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. He says, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? In other words, they're turning from the reality of God and who he is in their lives and they're going out to the graveyard and imagining that the dead can in some way speak to them in a way that God has not spoken. It may be that the whisperings and mutterings that they imagine they're conjuring up God's presence. But Isaiah warns when God is with us, this shatters this kind of, he describes it as a conspiratorial belief system. And so when Matthew announces that Christ as Emmanuel, he's bringing about this shattering, that Israel is going to stumble. That's there in Isaiah. The stumbling block for the Jews is God with us. And I'm referencing here Isaiah 7 and 8. Is Jesus the one who will sweep into Judah and fill the breadth of your land? He pictures God with us as overflowing. There's this kind of overflowing presence that will, he says, reach even to the neck. And then he says that the metaphorical wings of God with us will cover the entire land. Isaiah 8.8. 8. This seems like a, just a kind of overwhelming thing. But Matthew also quotes a verse from Isaiah in which the Messiah will cause no disturbance. It says he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. This is Matthew 12, if you want to read along. Matthew 12, 19 to 21. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So how will he bring about a revolutionary justice and provide universal hope, that's what's being described, without disturbing anyone, without breaking a reed? How is it from the womb of a humble peasant girl as a baby in a manger, he's working in a carpenter's shop, he's teaching a few disciples for three years, and then he dies on an implement of torture reserved for slaves. How is it that Christ changes the world order? God with us in the tomb, in ordinary life, on a cross. The way that Irenaeus pictures this, is that with his resurrection, he's recapitulating all things so that the world is opened to Trinitarian fellowship, God with us. Hans Balthasar describes Christ convening a cosmic liturgy as he has opened the world to divine love. He says the essence of all being has become visible in Jesus Christ. 
Here is God with us. He reveals the Father as a wellspring of reciprocal love. And so the fellowship of friends, the love that we find in family, the birth of a child, maybe in meditation, they bear the presence of Emmanuel. As Julian of Norwich puts it, everything is penetrated in length and breadth, in height and in depth without end, and it is all one love. And so many of us, I'm afraid, have tended to, maybe because of the modern age, maybe we're raised with a kind of patriarchal religion, we've tended to have a settled idea of God, a static God, a stale theology, a world emptied of the grandeur of God. Of course, what it misses, what it passes over, is this unsettling dynamic of God with us. In Jesus, we recognize that who God is is interdependent with the world. The incarnation shows us that the world is, it is made for communion and communication with God. God himself is interdependent in the relations of Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet this interdependence extends to creation. That is that the incarnation opens us to the interdependent relations of the Trinity. You know, Jesus displays his dependence as an infant upon his mother, the dependence of a child on his parents, the dependence upon other people's generosity. We really don't know how Jesus made a living, but we see that there were wealthy women who traveled with him, and it says that they supported him. Just the basic human dependence on culture we see God at work, that here is the way in which it demonstrates an interdependent reality that extends to who God is. It extends into the Trinity. And so to be dependent on God, on others, or to be part of an interdependent community, I believe that is part of participation, part of the mediating reality of knowing God. And so in Jesus, we see the divine in every, every area of human life, or I think we should. We see it in his healing touch. We see it, he thirsts. We see it in his sorrow at death. We see it in his love of children. We see it when he's tired. We see it in his mediating the realities in which he is known. And he says, I am. And he's proclaiming himself the very title, I am that I am, that was revealed to Moses. But it's a completion, the fulfillment of this one who goes ahead of us, not just into Egypt, but into the world. And so the point is, the Bible knows nothing of a kind of distant, unmoved mover. But it pictures God in interpersonal, dynamic relationships. He's father. He's mother, he's husband, beloved, companion, friend, advocate, liberator, king, judge. God is interpersonal relatedness. And this reality extends to his relationship to the world. That is, he gets his hands dirty, literally shaping Adamah, the earth, into his likeness. He is not unmoved, unoccupied, settled, but he is a shepherd, he's a farmer, he's a laundress, he's a construction worker, he's a potter, 
He's a midwife. He's a physician, a baker, a writer, a nurse, a homemaker. That is, we have all of this imagery in the Bible depicting God in which we can recognize his activity, but his activity is part of the ordinary activity of people. And so far from an uninvolved patriarch or a distant king, God is pictured as in Romans, as giving birth, nursing the young, caring particularly for children, for the poor, for the weak. And so the world is alive with the activity and grandeur of God. But our very idea of God may blind us to the reality by which we're surrounded. You know, the Bible points us to the constellations in Job and says here is the fingerprint of God. The she-bear protecting her cubs. The badger, you know, the birds, even inanimate objects, running water, light, fire, rocks, clouds. They all point us to the presence of his activity. In the Mishnah, which is a post-biblical Jewish writing, we have even a further extension of this. He's called the friend of the world. He's called the mighty one, the searcher of hearts, the one who knows the thoughts of all, the Lord of consolations, the height of the world, eyes of the world, life of the world, the beloved one. Maybe we should do what Paul does when he's on the Areopagus. You know, he says, I see an idol here to the unknown God. And he uses that as a basis to proclaim Christ. God may also be approached maybe through the myriad of names and activities found in traditional religions. You know, that's where our name God comes from, right? We really don't know where it comes from, but it may be the name of an idol. It may be the name, actually, we think that the Anglo-Saxons may have themselves been worshipers of the dead. So some think of people think it was a mound. That is, the very word has been rescued. This is true in Japan. You can't say the word God. You have to just use the word that's there, kami, kami-sama. But kami are the people that are in the graveyard. It's the emperor. That is, that there is this kind of restoration of language, of understanding. And so we find in traditional religions, he's the great one, he's the powerful one, he's the wise one, he's the shining one, he's the one who is everywhere, he's the friend, he's the greatest of all, he's the one who you confide your troubles in, he's the one who turns everything upside down, he's the one who is there from ancient times. We could go on and on that that is that there is this idea that the world knows something of the God revealed in Christ and Christ then comes to us in things that are reappropriated. He gives new meaning certainly to Hebrew names for God. Emmanuel is Christ with us, is God with us. I am that I am is fulfilled in the I am that is Christ. He appropriates and fulfills human expectations of an ultimate interpersonal reality. And I believe that's captured in God with us. And of course, partly what this means is there's not one settled concept. There is a dynamic unfolding understanding of who God is. I 
last week talked about Abba. This is even true of Abba, Father, the name revealed by Christ. It does not sum up or amass the truth in one stroke. You know, this is Henry de Lubac. He says that one can only keep afloat in knowing God in the way that a swimmer keeps afloat through a continuous stroking of the water. They are forever brushing aside the representations which are continually reforming, knowing full well that these support them, that if they were to rest for a single moment, they would sink. That is, who God is is a dynamic, unfolding understanding. As Thomas Aquinas puts it, if you imagine you have understood God, then what you have understood is not God. And this shouldn't surprise us that getting to know God, it's a lifetime, right? Well, I could say that about knowing people, knowing my wife, knowing my children. We lived for 20 years in Scuba Science City. And so I taught English to scientists who were much brighter than I was, obviously. Among the people that I taught, I had one student, his entire career was studying the circulatory system of the silkworm. Another, actually several, were studying the genome of rice. Another was a specialist in the human intestine. I had several students that were meteorologists, which it turns out to be one of the most complicated sciences because they have to study, they have to study all of the sciences. They're physicists, they're chemists, and I didn't realize there are forced meteorologists, there are desert meteorologists, there are meteorologists who study the ocean waves, and apparently there is no accurate working computer model of the weather. There's just too many variables. In SCUBA we boasted we had several physicists that were there working on a small particle accelerator. We know that the subatomic world, it's just bottomless. There is no end to it, and we are continually trying to build larger and larger accelerators. And so there was no area of study of science that no matter how small, it was not finished. There was no bottom. It was endless. The tiniest realm, you know, to say nothing, we know now that the expanding universe, if you hold your thumb up to the sky, those aren't just stars that you're blocking out but you're probably blocking out galaxies that are larger than our own. The universe seems to have an infinite depth so that the world consists of an endless number of finite infinities. This is the phrase that Jason Baxter has coined. He describes that between the 12th and 15th century, you know, for the Greeks, when they thought of infinity, infinity was a kind of troubling problem for them because it involved a kind of incomprehension. But in the 12th to 15th century, people began to think of the beauty of the infinite. That is, that in Christianity, we imagine that we can behold the infinite and that we can comprehend it. The two things are not opposed that we can understand the world. I mean, this is there in Job, it's there in the Old Testament, but there's an infinite depth to the world. And so theory of Chartres, he discussed how each creature functions as a mirror of God. 
but it consists of an infinite variety of mirrors. He says, just as a single face when casting its reflection off many mirrors is still one. So God looks at the world and history and he sees his face reflected in an infinite number of mirrors. Nicholas of Cusa, in his treatise on searching for God, he tells a brother that the path to God is a paradoxical ascent accomplished by descent into the world. And he uses the mustard seed, which of course is Christ's example, which grows in a tree and then drops thousands of seeds, which each potentially becomes a tree and if its potential should be unfolded in actuality, he says the sensible world would not suffice, nor indeed would 10,000 of or all the worlds that one could count just from a mustard tree. And then he performs, you know, he says you can do this with a thought experiment, that all capacity of the whole sensible world, and not only of this one world, but also of an infinite number of worlds how great a magnitude there is in our intellect. Through similar ascents, you will be able to ascend to the power of the millet seed and the power of the vegetable and animal seeds. He says the power of no seed is less than that of the mustard seed, and there is an infinite number of such seeds. Oh, how great is God who is the actuality of all potency. And so even if all the potentialities in every seed were unfolded, and of course this is at a time when they had no understanding of subatomic particles, but he talks about the infinities that it would unfold, and he says the world would still be but a shadowy explication of God. So the conclusion, if we settle for a static image, a limited image, a limited whole, an idea, maybe a distant and patriarchal notion of God, we're going to miss the dynamic of God with us in the boundless, finite infinities by which we're surrounded. He is with us in creation, in history, in time, in the human circumstance, which mirrors his infinity. We can see him at work, I believe, in the infinite depth of friendship, in the ever unfolding love of marriage, and in the bottomless fellowship and relationship by which we're surrounded. Emmanuel, in shattering the settled finite idols, offers up the world as a kind of icon of who God is, a mirror of his image. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.